Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast, the internet's best resource for getting ahead as a student, but a terrible resource for learning how to get all the coins in Super Mario World 2, six golden coins, where Wario's the bad guy instead of Bowser. Actually, I think it's Super Mario Land 2, not World 2. I, I don't know which up. one. I don't even know which one you're talking about at the moment. Have you I'm not confused. played that one? For the Game Boy? The original Game Boy? I don't know. Super Mario Land 2. I don't know. I didn't coins. always get all the games I wanted on the on the Game Boy. Have I played a Nintendo game you haven't played? I don't know if I've played it. I may have played it. It's just, real I'm good. Not, I'm just not sure. It has the world where Mario gets minified and he's a tiny Mario and you're like running around like toys and stuff. And I don't know. It has a bunch of fun levels. It's really different than other Mario games. I didn't have this game. Nope, didn't oh, play this one. It's a real good one. You, maybe you should play it. Maybe you should get your hands on a Game Boy. Or, better yet, Nintendo should add it to the Switch. All right. That, uh, Nintendo That's fair. They should really add everything thing. to the Switch. Yeah, I mean, if they added just every Nintendo game ever made for classic I mean, systems, I'd, I'd I would probably, be stoked. Yeah, I'd pay basically any monthly price to get access to all those. It would be like Steam deals. I would just buy way too many of them. And I probably would never play them all, but I would still be happy owning them. Because as it stands, I no longer have access to that game. Yeah. I'd have to buy it on eBay or something. It's a sad, sad world. It is a sad, sad world. Anyway, my name's Thomas, and I'm here as always with my good friend Martin. And we're back after two weeks. Something like that. How's this bi-weekly schedule treating you? Have you found the cure for Uh, I've been moving. You've so been moving. that's true. I have not yet felt any freer. How's the moving going? Not freeing. <laughs> it does take a while. It's going slowly. It's quite stressful. I mean, you could just rent a truck and knock it out in a weekend. Yeah, but really I'm moving. I'm moving very intentionally. So I'm trying to plan out each room before I move stuff, so that I don't move everything I have, and then mm. I want to get rid of stuff. I want the new place to be stocked, more or less, essentialism style. I mean, you could just move everything over, just pile it up in the living room, and then. Get but then rid of I couldn't design the living room there. very well. You could design the living room once everything else was out of it. The living room is the first most important room. It's where I play my video games. All right. And the play right. play the piano. I, I got it. For that, I got it. Never mind living room. You have a garage. I don't want everything just in the garage. Shove everything in the garage. Nope. Don't want everything in get there. I caught a little spiders. silverfish the other day, and I was like, "Listen, you're not that cute. I wish you were a spider." That's true. Silverfish are kind of not cute yeah i just you know i don't want all my stuff filled with them they can hang out in the cracks and whatever in the garage but i don't want them in all my stuff Mm -hmm. that's all i don't want them my things either pour a nice cup of tea find out i've accidentally been drinking some essence of silverfish it's actually it's very is that like a an ancient medicine it is it's uh, It's very rejuvenating and first boil from what i hear if you drink the silverfish silverfish yeah, it brings I don't you like closer this. to the divine nature of the universe and the I fact really, that we are all one 
together concept. I really don't like this. The idea of individualism is a complete farce, and you must drink the silverfish tea to understand this. I'm not a fan of this bit. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like the idea of bug tea. You don't want bug tea? Well, it's not really a tea. It's more of an herbal infusion. (laughs) Yeah, it's an herbal... It's not even an herbal infusion. It's it's an insecto... Insect infusion. infusion. Yeah. Hey, man. Anyway, that's a terrible idea. New cricket and silverfish tea infusion shop. Yeah, we're only seconds away from cricket powder tea because, you know, that's like a hip thing that now. That probably exists. Because there's the mushroom powder tea now, so there's yeah. – and the cricket powder already exists, so I'm sure people are doing it. The mushroom tea was kind of a – I don't want to say a fad, but a trend like five years ago. Well, so I've been we seeing have, it now in stores. Yeah, I saw it in – I think I saw it in Whole Foods like five years ago or maybe four years ago. Oh, well, now I'm seeing it like in obvious areas. Maybe, oh, is it maybe, maybe it has more of an audience. But then it said like cordyceps on there. And I was like, isn't that the stuff that takes over the ants? Is this yep. how the cordyceps get us? This they simply how... use capitalism and marketing to make us want to be taken over because that would be how to do it, honestly. Yeah. This is how The Last of Us works. Smartest way to do it. A bunch of hipsters buy the cordyceps tea and all of a sudden all of us are clickers. It, I mean, it makes perfect sense. That's how you would take us over, by making us think it was cool, and then we just do it. Yeah. I mean, I certainly like having a bunch of microphones in my house. It's very yeah. convenient. Yep. So there's a blueprint. Anyway, we're going to talk about something that I personally get a lot of questions about today. Uh, I don't know if you get questions about this. Maybe you do. Not usually. You are somewhat a hashtag online influencer yeah, blogger, the questions I get podcaster. are usually more directed toward That's like true. the other things I talk about rather than this. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of makes sense because I feel like you haven't gone out of your way to build like a personal brand around the work you do. You just incidentally do work that's yeah. kind of in public. Yeah, it's I'm kind just of a different. weirdo. Yeah, but I get a lot of questions on, um, you know, what does it take to actually make money as an online content creator, I guess, is the word for it. Um, I actually went to a going away party for one of Anna's friends the other weekend, and people, I guess, realized that I was a YouTuber, so I was getting questions all night, like, oh, is it, you know, do you get paid per amount of views that you get? Like, how do you even build a channel up to that level Mm. of, you know, audience? How do you make money? All this kind of stuff. So I thought we would take all these questions and turn them into an episode that not only explains how online influencers, YouTubers, podcasters, bloggers, how they make money, but also kind of delves into how marketing works in general. Yeah. Um, And I think this is useful for basically anyone to know. If you're a business major, if you're going into, uh, you know, marketing, if you're doing like growth hacking, you want to build a startup or join a startup, obviously you need to know this stuff. There's a lot of core concepts that I think are pretty important to know. But even if you're not, uh, some of the ideas we're going to go over here apply to the application process for getting a job in general. Um, I think that people should kind of just know how marketing works because they are always on like the receiving end of marketing messages as well. There's like a lot that I think is useful to know here. So we're just going to dig into it and, uh, yeah, hopefully it's useful for everybody listening to this, but especially people who might want to get into the online content creation game, because it is game, and I'm about to change it. 
All right. About to change the game. Freestyle. Yeah. But to, <laughs> I'm going to freestyle the rest of this episode. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to need you to go, you know, get the piano out for that. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I'm like trying to come up with some really lame opening line about, listen, kids, we're going to talk about marketing, but I don't want to. Let's not do I it. I don't want to. Okay. So I'm just going to start with the question that I got from uh, somebody at the going away party on Friday. He basically said like, so do you get paid like per amount of views you get on YouTube? Uh, and the answer is kind of. So yeah, I guess to start this off, one of the ways in which we make money is through ads on our YouTube videos. If people are watching this podcast on YouTube, then uh, they probably, well, they might have seen an ad if it's like 30 days after it went live. Because we don't put YouTube ads on any content we put out until 30 days after it launches. Uh, and we'll get into that later. But the way that YouTube ads work is essentially there's like a marketplace where advertisers can bid on ad spots on certain different channels. Uh, but the key thing is that those bids depend on the time of the year. They depend on the content of the channel. They depend on who the creator is in general. And what it really comes down to is like who is the channel reaching and how much influence does the person have? And where is that influence directed? And I've, I've kind of realized like even when you have a big audience, your influence really only extends to a pretty narrow band. Uh, I realize this every single time that I share music I like on Twitter. Because if I tweet about time management, or self-discipline or something, you know, it gets tons of attention. If I'm like, hey, you know, this new single from Time Evaluator is great, I love it, or, you know, that I love that Miku song with Big Boy, like, it's nobody cares. Nobody cares at all. Yeah, so, they shut off. Yeah. Tom's talking about music again. Exactly, right? So I think, like, there's this, in, there's this uh, implicit assumption that people have that if a person has a lot of followers online, they can... Um, wield influence, I guess, is the best way to put it in any arena. And that's absolutely not true. You know, you don't follow Bill Nye, the science guy for sick Fortnite tips. Though, honestly, if Bill Nye, the science guy put out a Fortnite tips video, let's I'm, hear the I, tips. Let's see what probably, he has to say. I would probably watch that. You know, just like you don't follow a Fortnite YouTuber for his advice on how to get a job or his advice on uh, you know, how to do better in your quantum physics class. Yeah. There are two separate areas. So people kind of get known for certain things and that is the area in which they have influence. And there's a whole lot of other factors around it as well. Um, you know, how like personally successful you are. There's a lot of factors that honestly, a lot of people can't control, you know, uh, you know, how tall are you? Are you good looking? All these kinds of things. Like if you, dig into the science of influence, which we actually did a whole series on, you'll know that people tend to be influenced by other people depending on a whole ton of different factors. What are they wearing? Are they in a position of authority? Do they have a degree with like a PhD or an MS after their name? All these things. So all these factors kind of go into what advertisers are willing to pay. So if I'm like a Minecraft channel or I'm a channel that gets like millions of views, but it's about celebrity drama or something. Yeah. You know, I get a million views on a video about how Logan Paul went on a date with Britney Spears or something. What? Whoa. Scandal, right? 
there's not a whole lot I can do with that attention in terms of making money because the audience that's coming to that video, number one, they're probably a really disparate group of people. And number two, they're not really primed to take any sort of action with that information. They're really just kind of like appealing to their brain's most base instincts, which is to follow drama. Yeah. You know? There's not really a good segue into like, here's my new productivity course, just exactly. in case you wanted to get down to business after you're done learning about Britney Spears. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know what you would sell if you were doing drama. Maybe like mugs or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know. You know, I a mug that says I, mean, I care about Logan. Maybe Paul there's and there's Spears. something, but this is not my niche, so yeah. I do not know. It's not my niche at all, so I absolutely have no idea how to monetize it. Um, but if you're running, say, a self improvement channel, and to not use ourselves as an example, let's talk about like Charisma on Command. They do videos on social skills, how to be more confident, how to make a good impression when you meet new people, that kind of stuff. So people coming to those videos have an intention. Their intention is to improve their lives in some way. And the video is giving a solution right away, right? Which means that if the video gets a lot of attention, it positions Charlie, the guy who runs the channel, as kind of an authority in the areas of social confidence, you know, conquering social anxiety, making good first impressions, possibly interviewing well for a job, getting a job, a lot of things that could translate to making big improvements in your life possibly making more money, possibly meeting people who could uh, connect you with other people that you want to meet, all kinds of stuff that you would be willing to pay for. So they can get fewer views on a video, but an advertiser is willing to pay more for those views. Yeah, they're they're way more focused. And I've, I've even heard of people with, on Instagram with just like 2,000 followers, which and if they're niched specifically enough, especially if it's like locally, because then a local business might yeah. be willing to sponsor you if you have influence within your city. Mm -hmm. But if it's just like a bunch of people from all around the world, a local business doesn't benefit at all from you because yeah. like somebody in India can't come to your neighborhood to go to the local coffee shop. That, that's a great example. But, but you don't need a lot of followers, 2,000. Well, it is a little bit of like a lot, but the big influencer out there have tens of thousands, so it looks mm -hmm. small in comparison, but you can still do stuff with it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example. So to get really specific that, uh, you know, let's say I had an Instagram account called Denver's Best Pizza. Yeah. And I just went around like taking pictures of myself eating at all the pizza restaurants in Denver. If a new pizza restaurant opens they would be highly incentivized to yeah. pay me to advertise their pizza restaurant. Everybody comes to you for the pizza advice. Because mm -hmm. if, I, if I have 2,000 followers, like it's probably 2,000 people who live in Denver and who are looking yeah. for places to pizza. You know something pizza. about them, exactly. Mm -hmm. Which means, you know, out of the 2,000, let's say that all 2,000 people see that post, which is probably not going to happen because Instagram and Facebook well, and they've all these, got their own marketing they, they, they need to do. love to not show your post to everyone, right? But, you know, say I post a picture of me eating pizza at this new restaurant and all 2,000 people see it. Like, there's a decent chance that 10% of those people are going to go try it. Yeah. And, and that, that might be the conversion in, they want. You know, 50 bucks per per party that goes in there times 200. Times, if they like it, they keep shopping there over and over and over. Yeah. That could be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of potential revenue off of 2,000 followers. Yeah. And yeah. if you're doing this in a really... So in the way we do it is we try to talk about things we would already talk about. 
right? Mm -hmm. So on that channel, maybe you already, you were like, yeah, I totally want to try that pizza place. There's no sense in your post that you're being a weird, shady marketer. So people trust it a lot more. They're like, well, he was already going to talk about pizza. If he gets paid to talk about more pizza, then he was already going to. It's not changing his, his opinion. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And so that's, I guess that's a big thing when you're an influencer online, a lot of, uh, a lot of your livelihood is dependent upon your reputation. Yeah. Like authenticity. Yep. And your reputation can be completely destroyed in a moment, but it takes a really long time to build. And I mean, obviously this is a concept that is, it goes beyond just online influencers and online content creators. Like your reputation is everything and people will remember when you violated their expectations and when you betrayed their trust. So it can be dashed in a moment, but it takes a long time to build. Yeah. You know, so really like the amount of trust people have in you, the amount of authority that you've built up, and then the the topic that you're talking about and, you know, the interest of the audience and the willing the willingness of the audience to buy really matters. So again, if I'm on a you know, Minecraft channel on YouTube, my audience is probably like kids. So it's pretty hard for an advertiser to justify spending a lot of money per views or specifically per thousand views. Cause in marketing, that's how it works. It's called uh, CPM, which is it stands oh, yeah. for cost per, I think meal or mile. I don't know how to pronounce it. It depends the, on the language. I don't know. It's the Latin word for a thousand. Yeah, I, don't, I don't speak Latin well enough, <sighs> but essentially they're paying like a certain amount per thousand views, at least on YouTube. So the typical CPM on YouTube, like the range you get is like one to $4 or maybe like 50 cents to $4, depending on the range of channels. Um, I think it's, I think it's 50 cents to $4. If you look on social blade, cause okay. they have like this oh, revenue like estimator. Yeah. You can plug anyone's channel URL into their revenue estimator tool. And it'll be like, all right, so this, this channel most likely makes this much per year, this much per month based on their views. Oh, that's and cool. it's completely dependent on this 50 cents to $4 range. So, if I'm the Minecraft channel, I'm probably down at like that 50 cents per thousand views range because what can you sell to kids that's going to bring in a lot of money? In-app purchases that their parents didn't want them to buy? Yeah, and I don't think Minecraft has those. So, I mean, you could try to sell like mobile games, I guess. Yeah, you'd have to... Or something like that. You'd have to pivot over into something else. But it, it's stuff that you can't... There's not a lot you can sell to kids in yeah. a reasonable way. On the other hand, though... So you have a channel like um, Real Men Real Style, or I think possibly even further along those lines, um, my friend Sven Raphael Schneider has a channel called Gentleman's Gazette, which is all about like dressing well in formal occasions. And he's got all these videos on like, you know, how to choose a high class watch, how to tie a tie, how to buy like a really nice suit. So the people watching his videos, probably a little bit older guys, maybe mid twenties, getting near the 30 years old. Like they're in in their career. They're trying to make moves. They're trying to get promotions, all this kind of stuff. They're willing to spend a pretty decent amount of money. So if I'm, um, Brooks brothers or, or I'm suit supplier or something like that, I might be willing to spend more over to that $4 per thousand range because more of those guys are likely to buy and they're likely to spend more money. Yeah. It's a, it's a more high value product. Mm -hmm. So in the end it's easier. And you had mentioned, uh, you had mentioned the, the recurring aspect of it when we talked about pizza, Yeah. Like if you become a recurring customer. So basically every business in the world, uh, if not explicitly, at least implicitly thinks about something called total lifetime value. And if you dig into something like Netflix's 
finances and how they do revenue projections. And I think there's actually case studies you can find online about Netflix specifically. They have very detailed algorithms and very detailed reporting that all goes into figuring out what the lifetime value of a customer is. And lifetime value is essentially the most important aspect because, you know, somebody subscribing to Netflix, they pay what, 12 bucks a month? Something like that. But how long do they stay subscribed? Probably forever because it's hard to give up freedom. <laughs> it is hard to give up once Netflix. Once you've been given it. But let's say, I mean, every every business has a monthly subscription. Every business that relies on repeat visits, they have what's called a churn rate. Churn just basically means what's the percentage of people every month that kind of quit. So let's just pull a number out of the air because I don't actually know what it is. But let's say that um, Netflix's churn rate is 15%. So like every single month they, they lose like 15% of their subscriber base due to cancellations. Or to make this really easy, let's just say that the average uh, length of time that a subscriber will stay on Netflix is two years. So that's what, $288, I think? Yeah. It's like 12 bucks yeah, a month times like 24 months. So cool, your lifetime value per customer is $288. You're gonna have people who stay subscribed forever or who upgrade to the big family plans. So they're bringing the average up. And then you've got people who do it for one month and again cancel and they're bringing the average down. So let's say like average lifetime value is 288 bucks. That means um, the time value of money calculation, notwithstanding, because obviously inflation is a thing, you can spend less than $288 to acquire a customer and you make money. Yeah, so if they were paying for like directly, direct like Facebook ads or something, if they spent 200 to get a new customer, Mm -hmm. that would be fine. They'd be like, we're making $88 on every customer. Yep. Depending on their overhead, of course, it's obviously simplified. But yeah, yeah, you're willing to pay that much because you think that's what they're worth eventually. Yeah, exactly. Like does the profit. So, you know, $288 is your lifetime value. You wouldn't want to spend $287 to acquire a customer because your profit is $1 per customer. And, you know, it probably costs a heck of a lot more than that to, (laughs) you know, to acquire customers. Um, So really, like, that's kind of where your profit margin is. And you can also get into, like you said, overhead expenses, uh, licensing fees, all kinds of stuff for business like that. Yeah. But that is what companies are thinking about which is why some companies actually pay more to acquire a customer than they make from that customer in say like the first year. Yeah, well, we've been rewatching The Office and actually Ryan the Temp in a very early episode, (laughs) he informs Michael Scott that it is way more expensive to get a new customer than to keep an existing one. And I think Ryan the Temp's words, they echo wisely here. That's true. I'm sure Ryan the Temp just read that in some Drucker management book, <laughs> <laughs> and he's trying to use it. Yeah, to, to get some brownie points. Oh, I think in the that's. Office. I think that's actually the the context <laughs> is that he's quizzing him based on his textbook. Of course. He so, is. but that's very true. Yeah. The, um, you know, the the cheapest way to acquire a customer is to keep one you already have because existing relationships are so much easier to maintain. It's so much harder to go out and and find new people, convince them that you're worth it, convince them to actually buy that's incredibly expensive. So I was actually looking at the job description for a marketing position today. Um, and they were like, you know, your, your role would be to help us gain new customers. But of course, the best way to do that is just to reduce churn rate, because then we don't have to gain new ones. We just keep our old ones, keep well, them happy. They're why, paying forever. Like phone plan people are trained to do basically anything they can mm-hmm. to keep you from quitting their service. Yep. Even if it seems like, but you're going to lose money on that deal. Not if we keep you for the next 80 years, we won't. That's true. 
Yeah. Or a good example, or good additional example, um, hosting companies pay their affiliates yeah. more for a customer acquisition than they make on that customer for the first year. But that's because they, they have done the customer lifetime value calculation, realize that the average customer probably stays with us for, I don't know, three years. So we make money and we're good to go. Uh, so this, I think, leads us into a discussion of funnels. Because like we said, like there's that lifetime value calculation and then there's the whole um, you know cost to acquire a single customer. The cost to acquire a single customer is the bottom of the funnel essentially. So, you know, picture like a fisherman casting a net into the sea. You're gonna cast the net into the sea, you're gonna drag it behind the boat, you're gonna catch like a certain amount of fish, right? So let's say catch a hundred fish. Uh, 50 of those fish, I don't know, for some reason like they were rotten or dead or something, you can't use them. So you only actually get 50. And then when you're dragging the net up into the boat, like, I don't know, 10 of those fall out. So you end up with 40. And by the time you get back to shore, 10 of those have died because the sun was too hot. So you end up with 30. Poor you know, fish. Poor fish. Yeah. But the point is the top of the funnel, which is in our case, YouTube views. Um, in the case of an advertiser, the say YouTube ads they buy or TV ads they buy, anything where they get that initial touch point with the customer, that's like the top part of the funnel. And whoever they catch in that first stage only a certain percentage of those people are going to move to the next stage. Yeah. So to give an example from the online marketing world, you've probably seen countless blogs or even YouTube videos where like, hey, click here, you can sign up for our email newsletter and get like a free ebook or something like that. We do this. Every yeah. single video we make, click right here, you can get a free copy of my book. Okay, so the first stage of the funnel is how many people actually clicked the video and watched it? Maybe it's on a good video, a million. Awesome. How many people actually made it to the end of the video to see that call to action? Well, we can actually see that data in YouTube. It's usually like 20%. Cool. So 200,000 people saw that. How many people actually clicked that link to go to yeah. the page where they could sign up for the ebook? Maybe 5,000 of those. How many people actually signed up? And, you know, on and on and on from there. Um, people who actually sell products through email lists, which we kind of don't, <laughs> um, yeah, they get a certain amount of email subscribers. And then, you know, every single time they send out like a sales pitch, they are only going to get X number of opens per number of subscribers. So if I sent an email out to 10,000 people, probably only 20% of those are going to open it. I think, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20% is the average in the email marketing industry. So 1,500 to 2,000 people open that email. And then the click rate is even lower. It's often like oh, yeah. two to three like, percent. Like, yeah, two percent's like a safe. If you're doing estimates, that's like the mm -hmm. number to start with. It's just two percent of people might actually click through to what I wanted. Yep. So cool. Two hundred people out of the ten thousand that I sent it to actually click the link, and then of those, only you know thirty five bought my product. Cool. So I had to acquire ten thousand uh, what they would call leads in marketing or subscribers if you're a blogger or whatever to make 35 sales, maybe my product is a hundred bucks. So I made $3,500. Cool. So that's kind of how the math all works. Um, it all depends on funnels and it all depends on how primed your audience is to actually buy what you're selling, what you can sell it for, how much trust you have in the industry, all these factors go into it. Yeah.
This week's episode of our show is brought to you by our friends over at Audible, which is the best place on the internet to get your hands on audiobooks. Audible has an unmatched library of audiobook titles in basically any genre that you can think of. Science fiction, science and technology, biographies, psychology, all kinds of stuff. And the great thing about Audible is that when you are a member, you get a credit every single month that is good for any title in their library, regardless of its price. And in addition to that, you also get access to two Audible originals every single month that you cannot get anywhere else and access to audio workout programs. Also, if you don't like an audiobook, you can exchange it for free for anything else with no questions asked. So it is a really, really great program. Now, every single time that we do an ad on this show for Audible, we like to recommend at least one book, but since there's two of us, uh, probably two of them for you to potentially start out with. And the book that I want to recommend this week is called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by Nicholas Carr. This is a book that I'm reading right now, and it was the the primary source for my video on what the internet is doing to our brains over my YouTube channel. And I found this book to be really, really insightful. It was a great look at how the technology that we use, not just the internet, but also TV, radio, books, basically anything, actually makes physical changes in our brains. Because of neuroplasticity, we actually uh, physically in our heads adapt to the technology we're using, to the tasks that we are using the technology for, to the things that we pay attention attention to. And with the internet specifically, we are changing our brains in ways that make it harder to pay attention, to focus, to concentrate. And this book is a great look at all of the arguments behind that and also how to sort of reclaim that attention as well. Now, I know you also have a book recommendation. So what is yours? Uh, My recommendation is going to be The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making by Catherine Valenti. It's a great book. I am currently working through the fourth book in that series, but I'm not going to recommend you start on the fourth, obviously. But uh, I love it. I am. And it's great. Everything about the world is the best. That that book is fantastic. And when I read it, I also found that the uh, the vocabulary was quite a bit higher level than I expected because that book's a YA book. Yeah, it's like it's basically like a kid's fantasy. I mean, the main character is like 12 or something to that effect. Yeah. Somewhere in that age. But it is written so colorfully, all, all the wor- worlds and environments and characters and even just the – literally the words that are used yeah. are interesting. I'm just like, well, that's an, that is a very artistic way to put that. Yeah, exactly. And the, it's brilliant. Yeah, the, the writing and the prose is just excellent. And I would imagine that listening to it is a really nice way to go through it and just kind of like focus on that prose. Uh, okay, so that's a great one and also with the fiction one which is a good contrast to my nonfiction pick. So if you want to get started with Audible, if you want to start listening to The Shallows or The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a ship of her own making, which I usually screw up saying, but I actually kind of got it right this time. uh, You can go over to audible.com slash CIG or text CIG to 500-500 on your phone. And if you're listening to this in July, which most of you probably are, between now and July 31st, if you are an Amazon Prime member and you go sign up for Audible, you're gonna get three months of Audible for just $4.95 per month instead of the normal price. That is a third of the normal price, so you should definitely go to audible.com CIG or text CIG to 500-500 on your phone before July 31st and sign up. 
Big thanks as always to Audible for sponsoring this episode and being a supporter of our show. And another huge thanks goes out to our second sponsor this week, Brilliant. Brilliant is an excellent learning platform for anybody wanting to improve their skills and their knowledge in the areas of math, science, and computer science. They have an excellent library of in-depth courses that go through topics like gravitational physics, classical mechanics, calculus, probability, statistics, and computer science courses like Python programming and computer memory, computer algorithms, all kinds of great stuff. And the best part about their courses is that they are all built from the ground up using the principle of active learning, which means that from the get-go, you are thrown into challenging bite-sized problems that, while they won't frustrate you because they aren't too big, they get you engaged in the process right away. You aren't just sitting back passively and taking information with absolutely no effort on your part. You are really wrangling with the concepts. You're wrangling with the information. And as a result, you become a better problem solver overall. You stay more interested in the process and you make more progress. Now, in addition to their library of in-depth courses, they also have a feature called daily challenges where every single day they post new challenges in a variety of different topical areas where you can sink your teeth into something that you might not have considered before. And this makes it really easy to make learning a daily habit. You can log in, you can check out the new daily challenges, you can dig into them. And then if you find a topic that you haven't done before that you're really interested in because of the challenge, you can go over to the library of courses and start learning about it more in depth. Now with Brilliant's free plan, you get access to new daily challenges every single day. And if you do wanna to upgrade to their premium subscription, you're gonna get access to the entire archive of daily challenges from the beginning and also access to all those in-depth courses. So if you wanna get started, then head over to brilliant.org slash geek. And if you're one of the first 200 people to go to that link and sign up, you're gonna get 20% off that premium subscription. Once again, brilliant.org slash geek. And big thanks as always to Brilliant for sponsoring this episode and supporting our show. Let's get back into it. So let's let's kind of talk about how we do it, because I think we have I don't know kind of a weird a weird model where we really never sell anything. Yeah, it is a bit of a weird model because we don't we don't actually sell any direct products. You're right; it's all free stuff. Well, we, so we kind basically of do. we we do technically sell products, but I get a lot of pe- uh, questions from people who will go to my site and be like, "Everything seems free. There's nothing like you're really selling, except for merch." Yeah, we you know. lead you to other companies that we trust through sponsors and things. Also mugs. Yeah, also. Please buy oh, mugs. Oh, yeah, we have the mugs. Buy mugs, otherwise the mugs, I'll starve. We have mugs and t-shirts. We have mugs and t-shirts. I forgot about that. <laughs> we do. So, yeah, we have, so we we do have mugs a couple products, but it's not, like, it's not like that's the the lifeblood, you know, of the yeah. business. Plus, Yet. our audience is not really primed to buy mugs and stickers. Like, maybe enough people like the well, brand enough that they want to buy a mug, but people don't come to College Info Geek because they want to buy mugs. Well, obviously, we should bring back the tea drinking thing and only use those mugs. That's true. Or we should sell a fancy tea set. The fancy CIG tea set. Hand blended. Yeah. By Martin, dressed <laughs> as a monk. Now, I'm not a monk. I'm only dressed I'm just as dressed a monk. As one. I need to make this clear. Not actually a monk. Haven't gone for yeah. training. Have yeah, not big, gone big asterisk. up the stairs. But I do have a costume. But yeah, they're just kind of little bonus things. Yeah. You know, so I, I, the way that we do it is we kind of have things we sell, but I try to provide a free version of them. So the uh, the book. Like we do make money every month yeah. from people buying the audiobook, the uh, print book, and Kindle versions of Ten Steps Learning Awesome Grades. And then there was a special version in that. And then there was box a special thing. version that you can get on our merch page. But it's also a free ebook. And specifically with that one, it was meant to be a free email opt in. 
That was always the purpose of it. I did not really intend for it to become a giant book, but it did. And I didn't want to go back on my word just because it's a giant book. Yeah, so you didn't like, want to be like, this is too good. It can't be too free good. now. I got to sell it now. No, it's like, I said it was going to be free, so it's free. And honestly, I think that was a great business decision. Like, yeah, we, we have, uh, we've taken some people off our email list because we have to pay per subscriber for email marketing. Uh, but at one point we had 250,000 people on our yeah. email list. And I think over 300,000 have actually downloaded the book and signed up over the years. Yeah, it's clearly been a good... And so it's been a great marketing tool. It's a good tool, idea. Right? Uh, you know, because if they join the email list, then I can let them know about other things. So that is free. And as a result, because that was intentionally free from the beginning, I have never actually um, actively marketed the paid version of the book until people get the free one. Like they get to download the free one. I'll be like, hey, if you happen to want a print version, if you happen to want a Kindle version or an audiobook version, yeah, you can buy one here on Amazon. But I'm only telling you this now that you have the free version because, you know, why, why would I try to sell you something when there's a free version out there? I would feel bad about it. In fact, when I first put it on Amazon, I was really annoyed because you cannot make the Kindle version free forever. Oh, yeah. And I, I was like... People are going to buy it for a dollar and then they're going to find out it was free on my website and they're going to email me and say I'm a fraud and a huckster or something. No <laughs> one ever did that. Well, that's good. <laughs> it turns out that people aren't actually really mad if they pay $1 for a book as long as the book's good. Yeah. You know, so I guess that was a worry that I didn't really need to worry about. But yeah, you, you actually can't make a book free on Kindle for um, an indefinite period of time. I guess You would have to go sense. in like every 30 days and redo a promotion. And I didn't want to do that. So we make money that way. Um, we have the Skillshare course. The Skillshare course actually brings in a pretty decent amount of money every month. But there's a two-month free trial. You know, every time we do a Skillshare out on this podcast, that's what we tell you. Two-month free trial. So you could just go take the course for free and then not pay if you didn't want to. Yeah. And I like that because in my head, it's like most people who are in college, a lot of people who are in high school, they don't have a whole lot of extra money laying around. And when we're teaching things like basic productivity, we're teaching like how to stay on top of all the things going on in your life, how to keep all of your assignments organized, how to get better grades. These are like the fundamental skills needed to do well in school, to get your first job, to build that base, right? And I just don't really want to charge for them. No, it's... Or at least I want to provide a way to that people can get that information without having to pay. Yeah, it's like you can have all this for free, but P.S., we love Skillshare, and if you felt like investing in yourself through their courses and you found it useful, mm -hmm. that'd be cool. And they've calculated that that is helpful enough and that enough people do decide to continue going on mm -hmm. that it makes sense. And therefore, a free trial course thing is still perfectly profitable, even though we aren't mm -hmm. putting a barrier. Yeah. And then for a certain percentage of people, again, next level of the funnel, they will get on Skillshare, they'll get that two-month free trial, and then they realize, oh, this is actually pretty great. There's a bunch of other courses yeah. here. I'm going to stay subscribed. And it's like eight bucks a month. So it kind of makes sense. You know, if, if I were selling my course, I would sell it for probably like 50 bucks or something. So from my perspective, stay subscribed to Skillshare for at least six months. I would have sold the course for that price anyway, if I was selling it myself. Yeah. You know, so for me, it's like a, a no brainer to promote them. Yeah. A lot of this business is built on like free stuff and loyalty and goodwill. Like we're just mm -hmm. trying to Here's the best chance you can. If you keep liking it, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. So let's see here. We've covered YouTube ads. We've covered the the things that we sell, I guess, which are 
barely things we sell. <laughs> but again, like we're able to be profitable on that because the audience is big enough. Yeah. And I think the way that we have built the audience is by making everything free and by just investing as much as we can to make that free stuff really high quality. Uh, and then the other thing, which is actually the biggest way that we make money now is through actually negotiated sponsorships on YouTube videos. So those always come at the end of YouTube videos. And really those are kind of an extension of the normal YouTube ads. They just go through first an agent and then me personally instead of YouTube system. It, they're more targeted because of that. Like they're, they're talking yep. to you about your niche and what value you provide. Yeah. And I mean, they also um, are much more effective because I'm the one delivering. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. You know, if you just get like Mr. Clean or something on you, a video. You might tune it out. You you didn't click on a Mr. Clean video. You clicked on a Thomas Frank video. Or you clicked on a Markiplier video or whatever. So you're primed to listen to that person. And that's why companies will pay a lot more for that person to do the ad themselves because people, they don't have a whole lot of trust. They don't have a whole lot of, um, you know, their choices writing on what some random spokesperson for an insurance company says. Yeah. But they do, um, they do listen to the people that they actually intended to go listen to. And that's where like the loyalty and the authenticity mm -hmm. comes into it because you could, you could just mess this whole thing up. Anybody doing this sort of thing could... Do yep. one dishonest thing, bam, nobody ever cares about their sponsorship slots ever again. That's true. So yeah, this is the area where it can get tricky and where it can get, I don't know if I want to say tricky. It's just, it's the area where you really have to dig down and concretely define your values because yeah. a lot of people can let the potential money in the short term erode those values. You just got to keep that long term in mind because- yeah. Long-term, obviously, keeping the money going is better than, like, one big windfall. But they're like, we want you to sponsor Squirrel on a Stick. And you're like, but that means nothing. Is this yeah. – I don't. E also, I don't even know if this is a real product. Are people going to think this is a joke? Or a company comes and they want they want you to advertise something that you actually think is harmful. Oh, yeah. So Well, I think Squirrel on a Stick good, is pretty harmful. Good example. I would never advertise a, um, a mobile game with in-app purchases. Yeah, ever. The whole point is. To I don't try care to... if they would pay me a million dollars because I know that. And I mean, this I pay. I play Overwatch all the time. I open loot boxes. You know, I do it as a person. But I happen to know that basically every game out there with in-app purchases has done psychological research to figure out how do you like do Pavlovian training on the human brain to make people want to buy in-game currency, want to buy in-game products. Yeah. Uh, and certain people get addicted to that. So. Am I going to be on my soapbox saying video games are evil? No. But am I going to take money from a game company to advertise and try to influence people to go, you know, play their game? No. No. I'm not going to do that. I don't. They could pay me a billion dollars. I, I wouldn't do that because my audience and their success and their happiness means more to me than making money. And I know that I can make money in respectful ways. Yeah. And you just got to keep that in mind where your line is exactly what your niche and brand and... Mm -hmm. All that stuff is. So we turn away far more deals than we take. And uh, I, I find that, or I count myself and I guess us as an extension as being very fortunate that we have sponsors that number one, I believe in, and number two, are willing to repeatedly buy ads. That is incredibly helpful because I think that they line up with the mission that mm -hmm. we're trying to do anyway to help people succeed, whether it be a class or a learning and all this stuff. And Yep. It just, it lines up perfectly 
We don't have to be over here selling things that have nothing to do with anything. Here's, mm-hmm. hey guys, did you know, listeners, I just joined Amway and I was wondering if you guys could all join my, yeah, don't. whatever you call that thing where you buy for me. Don't even, uh, don't even joke about that. But <laughs> like, we, we've we, never we done an episode to, about, we stick to things that we like. We've never done an episode about MLMs. I wonder if we should. Oh, well, they have an extra feature of their funnel. It's called social guilt. So when your friend is yeah. like, hey, let me sell this at your house, you're like, uh, but it's hard to say no to friends. Bam! There, they got an extra little funnel converter right there. That's true. You know, so we're doing an episode of marketing. Let's quickly talk about MLMs because a lot of college students will get pitched eventually by somebody, you know, representing your Herbalife's, your Amways, whatever those things are. Um, that basically companies where you are ostensibly selling a product. Because if you weren't, then it would be classified as an illegal pyramid scheme by the government. It would be shut down. So. Yeah. What these companies do is they have you buy product and then sell it to your friends and family or set up an online store, all these things. But where you make the real money is by signing up other independent business owners under you and then a certain percentage of all the money they make goes to you. And then they can do the same thing and the same thing. It's called a downline. Yeah. Kind of sounds like a pyramid, doesn't it? It's a reverse funnel. It's a re- it's a, it is kind of a reverse it funnel. Is. It's, it is. It's a but... funnel that flows upward, I guess. Here's the problem. When the incentive structure is built like that, when the way that you make your real money is by signing up a downline, not by selling a legitimate product for a good price that the market is willing to pay, somebody eventually loses. Yeah, you know? there's eventually a last tier that can't ever make anything back from exactly. it. And only the most ruthlessly able to get new mm-hmm. downline people win. And you know, you need you can't just have one person in your downline to be profitable. You need like 20, 30, whatever. And you need a bunch, you, you know, if you want to get to the top tiers, you need them to have people in their downlines. So the funny thing is when you look into these things, like the people near the top make most of their money on downline commissions and selling motivational tapes, seminars, DVDs, podcasts, all this kind of stuff. Because it is in their best interest to motivate their their downline to sell more and to sign up more people. So that's like a huge part of their business. But the problem is it's completely unsustainable because the person at the bottom of the downline always loses out. They invest a bunch of money in getting their startup kit. They can't sell it. Again, you're trying to sell to your friends and family here. So you, you kind of erode relationships. Yeah, your, your authenticity gets hit pretty quick. Yeah, like the moment you go hang out at a friend's house and you're like, hey, I'm actually selling these energy drinks as part of this like thing that I'm part of. Now they're going to have to wonder like, oh, every single time I hang out with this guy, am I going to have to get pitched on something? Like the first time you do it, you start to erode the relationship. And if you do it regularly, you start to destroy it. Yeah, this is a perfect example of having an audience, but they weren't primed for your product. So mm-hmm. it feels it unauthentic when you try to sell it to them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to buy and energy drinks from my friend Jake in high school. If you succeed, it's probably through social pressure, which leaves That's a true. negative aftertaste and does not build loyalty. So yeah. it's like, not, why, not, not sustainable. Why does somebody buy the products from you? Because they like you. Yeah. Not because they have determined that you are actually a very reputable and, you know, expert source of makeup or whatever it is you're selling. You know, if you want somebody, if you, like, if you truly wanted good makeup, you're probably going to go to a makeup store and ask a cosmetologist, like, what's the best stuff? You probably, you know, and maybe you would ask somebody who, you know, if they were super into makeup, but if they just all of a sudden they're like, those Instagram, they've never been into it incredible. and then they just got it. Like those people to make it look like got a third eye and stuff. I can't even handle That's it. That's true. Yeah, I'd go that, to them. That's a Jody Steele, right? They can, I don't know. I've, I get a, for some reason, 
Instagram suggests a lot of those posts to me, mm. and I have no idea what made them think that, but I think Probably they're cool. Probably because you follow so... Anna and me. Maybe, and but I I'm just like, if Jay. I knew that person, I'd go to them for makeup advice. How do you make me look like a literal tiger? It's amazing. That's pretty cool. But, you know, they're not the ones selling this. They have Instagram followings, and they probably make yeah. their money through those avenues. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the, the point of it being, you know, if you have a business where the main incentive is to sign up somebody beneath you, eventually there is going to be somebody who has no one left to get beneath them. So, and, and you know, the base of the pyramid is the biggest part of the pyramid. So more people end up losing than those who end up winning. So if you're, you know, the kind of person who's got like that F you, I got mine mentality, then that kind of a business is perfect for you. But if you're the kind of person who legitimately wants to make a good impact on the world, then you, you wouldn't do it, you know? Yeah, you're you're signing up to know that somebody below you eventually must lose. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't want to say that everyone who gets involved in a business like this is doing that intentionally. Oh, no. I think I, a lot of people never think about it. Well, and a lot of things that don't end up being very savory at the end, it's not the majority of the people involved who are even having any bad intentions. It's usually mm-hmm. like manipulative top, level yep stuff and what i've noticed is when you get into business when you get an audience when you have these opportunities coming in um there will be people who can make very very powerful justifications for why you should take a deal yeah i know people like this you know they'll be like i'll get a deal and i'm like this this really makes no sense for my audience like a company selling watches yeah i don't want to advertise watches on my podcast Number one, because I know those watches cost like four cents to make. So like, yeah, they're cheaper than a Rolex, but there's a reason for that. And also, what is a watch if not just a random status symbol? You know, but I've got friends who will be like, yeah, but you could say, you know, if you have a watch, you're going to look more authoritative. You're going to look like, you know, you have your life together. You're going to look more professional. You could possibly, you know, use that to negotiate a higher salary in an interview. Boom, you're making $10,000 a year more. That watch is paid for itself. Has it, though? Well, see, if you're clever, you can pitch anything like that. Yeah. You know, the like whole sell me a pen thing where it's like, this isn't a pen. This That's is what true. you're going to use to own your own business and sign all these documents and that's do, true do, do, yeah do, 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 do. And, if, and if you know you, you paid 500 dollars for that pen you're going to feel like a man of power while holding that pen you know it's if you're symbol. sitting across the table from the ceo of a fortune 500 company and you're signing your contract with a little big pen from walmart <laughs> they're not going to take you seriously they're going to think you're an absolute bum you better have a pen that costs at least 500 dollars if you want to be taken seriously this episode is your entire pens. life is going to go down the drain your wife's going to divorce you she She's going to get custody of the kids and you're going to get addicted to drugs and die in the gutter. Buy this pen. Yeah, you could sell anything with the right angle. That's true. Which is why you got to be careful about what angles you're allowed to sell from. That's, you know, the moral of the yeah, story, really. So we think really hard about, you know, is the angle we're selling from legitimate? Is it much more authentic than not authentic? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, so <laughs> this is why we have to reject a lot of deals. And it's why we leave a lot of money on the table. That's totally fine with me, you know? And it's not just uh, the integrity of, you know, the companies you're working with. There is other factors here too. Um, you know, we we went down in the amount of content we're producing. That's because yeah. for me to feel good as an artist, if I'm allowed to call myself an artist, I have to put actual effort, I have to, put actual creativity into my content 
And that means I can put less of it out. I'm very aware of the fact that I could make really surface level videos that would get a lot of views. I know this because sometimes I'll put out a video where I'm like, I feel like this is really obvious stuff, but I guess I'm just putting it out. And then people were like, whoa, this is so cool, you know? And I'm like, really? <laughs> like I just said, use a calendar. <laughs> you know, I guess sometimes that hits a chord, but if I don't feel good about it, then I'm not gonna feel legitimate, right? And I could easily put out 10 videos a month or 20 videos a month if it was like that, but I wouldn't feel good about it. And maybe I'd be making way more money, but I think I would eventually burn out just from not feeling pride in my work. So I think part of the responsibility of being a person with an audience is that if you're gonna put something out, you should believe in it. Even if it's you know the, the artistic element that you need to make sure you believe in. Yeah. Well, if you're going to ask people to, you know, like, comment, subscribe, and make sure they get all your newest stuff, then you better believe that it's going to be worth them to see your newer stuff. Mm -hmm. If you're just like, subscribe, but like every video after this is kind of nothing. Yeah. But I'll get paid though. Like, it feels better to be subscribed because I promise you this is going to be helpful. Yep. And cool. Yeah. And we like can't. If I'm asking people to subscribe, I should be stoked about what's coming out in the future for them. Yeah. And you can't do that with infinite videos. Mm hmm. Yeah, if I'm just like, uh, wake up, you know, I guess and I'll just talk about this. And eventually, goodwill might drop off mm -hmm. because you got to run into repetitive stuff and then everything falls apart. Yeah. Like, when once you attain that success, you have to do a lot of work to keep it. You know, it's it's a tough balancing act. Um, so I, I promised that I would make this relevant to everyone, not just people who care about marketing. So I want to go back to that funnel concept because... You can use this funnel concept to understand how hiring works as well. So even if you don't care about business, even if you're never going to be a marketer in your life, you are probably at some point going to attempt to apply for a job and hopefully land it. Uh, now, same the same concept applies when we talked about advertising. You get a certain amount of people who see the ad. That's the top of the funnel. A certain amount of people who click the ad. That's like the midpoint of the funnel. A certain amount of people who buy. Bottom of the funnel. And that's the part that matters because if a thousand people saw my ad, but no one bought my course or no one bought my product, then I just wasted however much money it took me to buy that yeah. ad. I need to make money. Uh, with, with hiring, right? Maybe a thousand resumes go into a position. Only a um, hundred, if that, get an interview. Or maybe only a hundred actually get seen by a recruiter because they have like Probably an applicant that. tracking system that's just scanning for keywords. So maybe 20 interviews. And then of those, only one person gets the job. So if your resume is going in at the top of that funnel, you have a one in 1,000 chance of getting that job. You know, And maybe the probability weights better in your favor because you're a better candidate. It's not like pure, just random probability. But uh, the point here is the way that marketers try to uh, make more money is by optimizing every single stage of the funnel. So when they run Facebook ads, they do a bunch of tests. What was the click-through rate on this ad versus this ad? Oh, we used a picture of a cute fluffy bunny over here and we got more clicks. All right, uh, yeah, all a ads from now testing. on have cute fluffy bunnies. Um, you know, people clicked, okay, how many people actually bought the product on this version of the sales page that was longer versus this other version of the sales page that we sent half the clicks to that's shorter. Oh, it turns out the longer one actually was better. Okay, cool. So now let's send everyone to the longer one. So they actually do research to figure out like, how do we optimize each stage of the funnel? 
um, and also how do we reduce the number of stages in the funnel. So when you're looking for a job as the person who is applying, you wanna figure out number one, how do I get into a smaller funnel that gets me to the same place so I'm less likely to be weeded out? And then how do I optimize myself at each stage of the funnel? Yeah, so an immediate example is uh, when we were hiring, I went through every single application for writers mm -hmm. and just anybody who didn't answer the any of the, like they missed questions, they left a bunch of stuff blank, immediately out. They they died in the first stage of the funnel yep. because somebody has to not make it to the next stage. Somebody has to. Yeah. And it, it's like triage. You know, doctors can't deploy medical resources to literally every and, patient. Yeah, and the best writer in the world could have been one of them. Could have been. But we can't check everyone. Somebody mm -hmm. has to be filtered. Yep. So yeah, for example, we had like a, I think it was a question at the end that was just anything else you want to tell us. And uh, if if they put nothing there, then we weeded them out. Yeah, it was just like, eh. I think we also had one that was just like uh, a test of whether or not they could pay it really good attention. just to check something on your site. I think it was, you know, what is the like, seventh listed DDR song on Tom's yeah, Impossible it was, list? It was definitely something like that. And it's like, if you know how to Google and you have paid attention to the application, you will be able to find that very easily. Uh, but a lot of people, a lot of people wrote, I don't know. Yep. So then you've got to, okay, you've got to filter somebody out. You're like, well, okay, we've got a thousand and I need one. Mm -hmm. So this is going to help me. Goodbye. Yep. Thank you so much for not answering the question. Cause it's, it's like not even hiring managers fault. They just have to. Mm -hmm. So if you're applying for a job, you want to try to get into the hiring manager's head and think, how are they filtering at each stage of the funnel? Yeah. All right, so the top of the funnel, maybe they're using an applicant tracking system that's looking for specific keywords. Cool, I'm going to analyze the job posting, make sure that I pay attention to the fact that they said, okay, they want JavaScript experience, they want Node.js experience, I'm putting Node.js and JavaScript in my skills section on my resume. Don't wanna get weeded out at that, at that stage. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm tailoring my resume for this position. I have web development experience, but then later on I had like a less relevant job in the fall. Maybe I was giving campus tours or something, but this is a web development position. I'm putting my web development experience first. So if it actually gets into the resume, into the, uh, into the recruiter's hands, like they're seeing that first, cool, into the short stack, I go. And then you can do all kinds of optimizations all the way down. How do you interview better? Can you dress better for the interview? Can you build relationships with people who are not just the hiring manager who might have the hiring manager's ear? All these kind of considerations go into the uh, into the equation of whether or not you're gonna be that one out of a thousand that actually gets hired. So yeah, everything's funnels. Funnels are funnily things. <laughs> Jimbo. Yes, they are. <laughs> Jim, James, Jiminy. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of funnels, how many how many people are still with us of the ones that actually downloaded the episode? Oh, that's a good question. Good question. That's a yeah. good question. They could they could have listened to the first part where mm -hmm. we were probably saying nothing, decided eh, and then left, or yeah. they decided the topic wasn't right and then they left, and they'll be around to try the next funnel. I, I don't guess know. so. That's true. Yeah, I mean, topic selection is a big part of the funnel. Um. And I realize there's probably people listening to this who are hoping that we were going to give actual numbers on what we make on ads. And the reason that I'm not doing that is um, in many cases, there are contracts in place that say like, don't say how much money you made on the ads. So I just have to respect those. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I guess I can say like what the business as a whole made because that's not violating anything. So I, I think last year 
we brought in like 350 gross revenue. Hmm. So a lot of that goes into what I call the war chest. So I don't personally use it. I don't even personally put it into my own savings. It's just in the business account just in case something happens. Like our site goes down or YouTube goes down. Like or YouTube yeah. is just like, we're done. And we're like, crap, okay. We've got X number of months based on how much money is in the bank and our expenses to, to find, something find else. a new revenue source. Oh, this is why people want you in their email list, by the way, because we don't want to lose an audience if YouTube yep. decides, hey, your audience is gone and they just take it away. Yeah. So yeah, good thing or a good point with the email list. We really don't sell a whole lot on our email list. I, I think the the only thing we sell is we advertise the Skillshare course. Yeah, which is still which, free again, with the trial if you take free. the trial. But we, we make money on the Skillshare course, so I guess we could say we advertise that. But we don't really have like a paid product that we're trying to yeah. get people to buy. But we've got collegeinfogeek.com and the email list because mm-hmm. if YouTube and any podcast uh, host that we decide to use, anybody just decides, hey, we're just going to pull this rug out from under you, we've, we mm-hmm. don't lose access entirely to the people that have been following us. Yep. Yeah, it's I guess it's a form of it's insurance. A, yeah, it's an insurance against the dangers of online business, which often mm-hmm. rely on other hosts. Yeah, I mean, there's so many dependencies. Google, YouTube, uh, Cloudflare, our web host. Yeah. You know, so what we try to do is we diversify our income sources as much as we can, um, try to keep expenses low, but also we try to keep a certain number of months expenses in the business just in case something happens. Yeah. Oh, uh, and this, this might actually be useful for anybody who wants to do a sort of online thing. So like I was saying earlier, I've heard of people on Instagram that can be like micro influencers with like 2000, a thousand followers in Mm -hmm. a certain area and start getting some sort of sponsory kind of deals. Yeah. Uh, what is it with podcasts? Like you want like maybe 20,000 in the first week or what's day it was 5,000 per episode is what we heard from the CEO of, uh, some podcast hosting company that was really big. I just can't, I'm brain farting it right now. But podcasting is is more competitive now. So it's probably going to be a little more than that. Yeah. So you got to hit what then in the first, maybe 10, you, you're measuring like what your first week of your, of the I episodes downloads. I think they usually downloads. ask us for 30 days. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that looks better then. First week is what shows up on Simplecast. But um, whenever we get asked, it's like, I think it's like a month later. Yeah. And when did, um, when would you say the video started working out for like for sponsors? How, how big was your audience at the time? Because I know your audience has continued to grow. How many yeah. followers did you have when it started being business relevant? It's a good question. Uh, you mean for YouTube specifically? Yeah. The first sponsorship I did was the video on how to learn skills faster. And that one was sponsored by Skillshare. And they were my first sponsor ever. Uh, and I actually negotiated that deal directly with them. I have oh, an cool. agency now, but I, I don't know how many subscribers I had, but I get, I bet you could go to social blade and you could look at when that video came out and what my subscriber count was at the date. Um, also subscriber count. It, it's another kind of like red herring factor because you can look at any number of channels that have half the number of subscribers I have, maybe even a hundred thousand, but they're getting more views oh, yeah, per video. Oh yeah, search results and the suggest. I forget, I don't use YouTube. Yeah, so I think the pe- the thing people need to keep in mind the most is it's not subscribers, it's not views, it's um, it really comes down to influence. You know, if I have a thousand people watching a video, but all one thousand of them will convert on something, then that's worth more to an advertiser than 
a million people watching a video, but only a hundred of those will convert. Yeah. So if you're focused enough and you can find the right people, mm-hmm. um, you're a good quite or a good uh good example. My friend Matt runs Swim University, which is all about incredibly pool niche. He has I think nineteen thousand YouTube subscribers. Um, he typically pulls down like three thousand, two thousand view, uh, views per video. So he's probably not making a whole lot of money on the AdSense side, but if he has really good content about maintaining pools and he has those like embedded on his articles and 2000 pool owners watch this video on what's the best robotic pool cleaner, what's the best brand of chlorine to put in my pool. And then he has like an affiliate link to that robotic pool cleaner. Then a bunch of those people are probably going to go buy it. Yeah. So he doesn't need to have a million people watch that video. He needs like 2000, you know, 35 year old dads with a good chunk of change sitting around who really don't want to clean their pool anymore. So basically the smaller your niche or the, the more, the more niche down you are, the smaller your audience needs to be before it's useful. Whereas if you were like, we're going to dive brand new right now today into education, that's huge. Yep. You need a large audience. Yep. And And I also think that it's important uh, now more than ever to start really niche down because of how much competition there is. I think that it is simultaneously harder and easier than ever to make it big on YouTube. It is harder because the competition is more fierce. There's more production money going into content. There's more people on the platform making videos, but it's easier than ever because there's more people watching on the platform than ever before, which means there's more of an audience there for really, really tiny niche. Yeah. So if you're like, I'm going to make an entire channel on painting Warhammer 40k figures, in 2009, there were not enough people on YouTube for that to matter at all. But now, if you made a whole channel on how to paint and customize, you know, a role-playing game, tabletop game figures, you could make a channel just on that. Not even on, like, role-playing games as a topic, but purely on, like, painting and customizing your figurines. And you yeah. could probably make money on that. Yeah. And that's why a lot of stuff like... Um, when, when I was reading articles back when I had started Instagram, and I was like, how does this work? A lot of people will be like... You want your your page to look semi-consistent. So when people look at it, they're mm. like, oh, that's what this is about. And it will continue yeah. to be about that because you're, that's your niche, if, essentially. Yeah, it's kind of hard to be like Gary Vee on Instagram if you're just starting. You know, he's, he's had a million followers on Twitter since like 2009 or something. So he can afford to be totally yeah. shotgun approach everything everywhere all the time. Yeah, because his niche is that it's him. Exactly. But people care like, oh, it's Gary. I want to follow Gary. I don't care what he says. I don't care what kind of format he puts out. Like, it's Gary. I want to follow that. But no one cares about Thomas. Yeah. If you go to if you go to a brand new account that's just starting and it's just everywhere, you're like, well, I don't know what that's about. Eh." But if it's like, whoa, this is very specifically black Mm -hmm. and white landscapes of Japan. I like that. It's so specific. I'm going to follow it anyway, because that's what I want. Yeah, I think this. Yeah, this is a key concept that we probably should hit on you know and this is going to sound harsh but it's just the reality when you're an unknown nobody cares about you yeah personality marketing doesn't work yet friends care about you because they know you as a person but on the internet like there's not enough time there's not enough attention to go around for them to really get to know you and like you as a person until you make them care about the thing you're talking about and again black and white landscapes of japan that's something i would probably be interested honestly i'd I'd probably i'd follow that account I would follow, I follow some really an Instagram stuff. account that's just like, literally all I do is videos showing you the tone of specific brands of guitar strings. I'd follow that. Yeah. Maybe you wouldn't. 
Maybe most people wouldn't, but I'm pretty interested. And I don't care if he's like Ronnie from Pennsylvania. I don't know you. It's we're, we're separated by thousands of miles, and I'm I don't have time to know you, Ronnie. But if you know, you're like you're the most knowledgeable person on the tone of different guitar strings, and I'm interested in that. I'll follow you absolutely. And then as I follow you later on, I'm, I'm going to start to wonder like, all right, who is this guy? You know, I like his content. I'm pretty interested. Now I'm going to spend some time trying to figure out who he is. Yeah. So the the bigger you grow your audience, the more they care about what you're talking about, the more they come to like you. And that's how you build real influence. You know? Um, now I'm just thinking about all the different niches. There's a lot of really interesting stuff out there. And often mm -hmm. you can just combine a couple of things. Yeah. To suddenly you've you've made a niche now because you just threw these mm -hmm. two things you like together. My favorite niche combination is tier zoo. So it's zoology, but then it's uh, mixed with like Smash Bros character tier list things. So it's like, all right, here's the dog tier list. Like, you know, this is the F tier dog. Here's the S tier dog. Like, what's the best dog? Or like birds, things like that. And his editing is hilarious. There's like Overwatch kill noises or like Super Smash Bros. music in the background. So it's just like mashing these two things together that no one would ever ever thought to do before. Yeah. And, and you said that name was an accident, right? Was it an accident? The tear being German for animal also? Yes, he didn't know that at that's, first. That's beautiful. That's the perfect kind of niche where you can also make a really clever name mm -hmm. on accident or not. But... <laughs> I think, yeah, you it's pointed really cool. that out to me. And I think someone had already pointed it out to him when I told him, but he was like, yeah, I didn't know that when I Well, I mean, it. lots of people know German, so somebody had to have noticed. That's true. But it's really cool. Yeah. You know, if he had tried to make an animal channel, probably not as easy of a time getting some growth because there's already a bunch of animal channels. And there's clearly all kinds uh, of yeah. gaming channels. If I was going to do cute cat videos, but this time it's only cute cats with pirate hats. Cute cats with pirate there hats. There you go. That's actually the name of the channel. You know, or there's another guy on YouTube. He does guitar covers. Um, but he always has his dog in the frame and he's done some really clever masking to make it look like his dog is playing the, the bass drum on his drum kit. Oh, like, I think he actually trained the dog to hit it once. And then he's just done masking and like repeated the paw going down and hitting the bass drum. But then the dog's just like laying there and being cute. That's a niche. It is right. Cause there's plenty of guitarists on YouTube, but not so many guitarists that have a dog playing the drum. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you got to find a way to combine a couple of things, make something where there's no competition. And also something where, and I think it has to be something where like the audience of one thing would also care about the other thing. You know, cause I could be like bass guitar tips for people who like to wear aprons to school. That's probably not. Yeah, I mean, but you could still a get a little weird <laughs> though because I could probably make linguistic videos but include cats all the time because Lots That's of people true. like cats, so therefore the cross-section of linguistics people and cats people, honestly, I feel like that's probably higher than dog people just because mm. linguistics seems like the like sort of introverted and quiet in your house kind of thing to I me, which I would associate with cats first. So that's still a relatively random mix, but I still think it mm -hmm. could work if done correctly. And it doesn't even have to be like specific pairing of niches. It could just be like you picked one niche, but then you kind of inject other elements of another one. Listen, Money Matters is a great example. That podcast, personal finance podcast, but they decided to do it differently than everyone else was doing it. So they started out every single episode being like, hey, what beer are you drinking? They talked a little bit about the craft beer they're drinking. Uh, there was like rock, like metal music to start it out. So it's like it had a different kind of feel to it. Yeah. 
And it's just like, all right, cool. I know that craft beer loving metalheads also want to know how to manage their money and they don't want to listen to Susie Orman or Dave Ramsey. So they're going to, that's like, I've given yeah. them a new home. Well, and that's why we tried to, or they have. when we started out, there was a lot of like video game mix content mm -hmm. and there still is. We still mix the like nerdy video game references and, and we're doing Dragon Ball Z things and like, yeah, it's like, soon. but that, that goes way back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because that was the mix. The second video was the Tony Hawk What if you liked video method. game stuff, but also you wanted to be good at school? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember I wanted to start a blog that was literally going to be like productivity and, and business lessons from video games. And I never ended up starting that blog. But perhaps perhaps that content should become more prevalent on the channel. We'll see. It could be fun. We will see. Yeah. I don't know how long we've been going. I don't know. We've discussed a lot of things. Yeah. Um, hopefully you made it, was, it to the oh, bottom of this one episode thing I did want to say before we leave. And that was the, um, the advice for people who want to make money on the internet, doing it through content takes a long time. So for me started in June, 2010, didn't make, uh, even a hundred dollars a month until I believe June, 2012. So two solid There was a years. lot of content. Two solid years. years. Um, some of those months in those years, I wrote 30 articles a month. Yeah. So I, I think I wrote at least 200 articles before I made it my first It wasn't like one a month, month I wrote 20 articles and suddenly I'm rich. It was no, like no, you wrote was, tons. It was two years, one of those years being absolute obsession. Like staying up all night coding my theme and like writing as many articles as I can. And this, I think we talked about this the other day off the mic, but there seems to be, or no, I talked about this with, uh, with Matt about this. There seems to be like a reactionary push against the internet from self-help gurus right now. Like everyone seems to be making their own blog post or podcast or book or video about how the internet's destroying our brains, they're destroying our lives, social media is terrible, you got to get off, you got to disconnect. And like, I'm part of that. I made the whole what the internet does to your brain video. We've talked about it a lot. And I, I agree with some of the sentiment, but it's not. I agree with the sentiment, but I think what we need to do is admit that we say all this stuff from a position of privilege. Because all the self-help gurus that are saying this stuff, they got to where they are by absolutely immersing themselves in the internet for an inordinate amount of time for years. You know, I did. Yeah, the, I was the up internet's at night useful. It's really just my about WordPress themes. What you do with it on forums, on comment sections, trying to reach out to people, trying like just absolutely immersing myself in the internet, probably to an unhealthy degree. But it's hard for me to say like that's not what got me to where I am because I think it is at least in part. Yeah. Now there's obviously a balance because to make good content, I had to go and like spend time focused on the content, spend time researching all that kind of stuff. But it. <sighs> It's hard for me to be like, yo, disconnect from the internet all the time. Like use it as little as possible, but you can still become like a successful online entrepreneur. Yeah, that doesn't make, I, that, that doesn't really do make that. sense to me because you, know? you need to have the presence there for, to be, even be followed. Yeah. I don't know anybody who just, you know, they use the internet for two hours a day and otherwise they were like meditating or in their garden who is a successful online entrepreneur. Everyone I know who's successful online, like has worked their butt off spending way more time than they probably should on the internet. But probably doing things on it other than just watching cat videos. Yeah, or, they're or not, something. you know, dicking around. But so it's like what you use the internet for. Yeah. So again, it's like 
yes, try to maintain your mental health, try to maintain the healthy separation. But again, if, if your goal is like to become a YouTuber, I don't know many YouTubers who did that and became successful YouTubers. And I certainly didn't do it myself. I was, you know, obsessed, like trying to figure out how, how can I get my videos on Reddit and get upvotes on it? Um, can I, you know, build a way to embed my videos on my website so SEO traffic comes in? Um, what's the best way to title a video? What's the best kind of thumbnail combination? Ooh, let me go read this scientific study about thumbnails. Just anything and everything, you know, it, it wasn't disconnection at all. Uh, anyway, long story short, it takes a lot of work and I think obsession to become a successful content creator. It's just tough. So if you want to make money on the internet, the faster way to do it is to go freelance. Yeah. Be a freelance writer, be a freelance web developer, be a freelance photographer, graphic designer, um, UX designer, voiceover artist. Go on fiverr.com and look at the categories there and see what's on offer. Go develop an insane amount of skill in one of those areas. And again, it's the whole funnel thing. If I'm like the best UX designer in the world, I don't need a million people to know I exist. I need Airbnb to know I exist. Yeah, just That's it. One, one big client. One big client. When I was in college, again, I it took me two years to make my first $100 per month blogging. It took me one month from starting my web design business to land a client and make 350 bucks. And uh, in college, I think the, the highest paying web development gig that I got was 2,500 and I could have kept going if I wanted to. And then your highest paying one was more than that. Yeah. Because it was me. That is true. <laughs> so, you know, if, it doesn't take as much time to build the amount of skill you need to charge a client to do some kind of service. It doesn't take that long. Yeah. When they're yeah. buying from you directly, you only need a few. Mm -hmm. And then you can, you can do like actual outreach. You can go talk to the Chamber of Commerce. You can uh, put, you know, bulletin board ads up. You can do all kinds of stuff. And it's probably going to be easier to find a client that way. Now, will it be as rewarding? That's up to you, you know? I mean, you might have to work with some clients that you're like, hey, this is annoying. It's not my favorite. But it will. it's just going to be a much faster return. Mm -hmm. uh, Ransom's a good example of that. You know, he, until, until this month, I don't know, last month is when he started. He was a freelance writer who made his entire living from working for clients and eventually got brought on to an agency where he was doing lots of articles for tons of different clients. And that was his entire income. And only just now is he working for us, but he was able to spin that up relatively quickly and didn't need a huge audience for it. So I just wanted to put that out there because I wanted to reiterate just how, how tough it is to be a full-time content creator. And yeah. that's not my way of saying other people shouldn't do it because Obviously, I am very glad that I did, and it's absolutely worth it if it's something that you're passionate about. But when I meet the people who are like, how long is it going to take me to make money doing YouTube videos? Like, I don't know if I want to put the effort in if it's going to take more than like a year. My answer is don't put the effort in. If all you care about is making money, you will burn out before you do. Yeah, that's It's not the best way to do that if that's all you care about. Mm-hmm. But if you care about putting out really fun videos about animals and video game stuff because you just want to or because you want to learn how to edit video, absolutely do it. You know, if nothing else, you have like something you can put on your resume. I built this YouTube channel. Check it out. You know, better than my friends that were just playing video games all day. But if all you care about is making money, 
that's not the motivation that's going to get you to the point where you can make money. Weird catch 22. Yeah. It's the long game. It is a long game. And speaking of long games, your short game. This was a long episode. Yeah, how is your short game? <laughs> I'm a stickler, me seeks. All right. Uh, I think it's going to do it for this episode. So hopefully you found something useful here. Hopefully it was interesting, at least. And uh, if you want to find the show notes for this episode, it's going to be episode 269. So com slash 269. Um, there's definitely some things that I mentioned here that I'm going to want to link to if we can, like the churn rate for Netflix and stuff like that. I remember reading the case study about them a while ago. So dig into the show notes if you're curious. Otherwise, you can go over to CIGpodcast.com with no slashes or numbers at the end of it to subscribe to the show if you haven't done so already. If you're watching us on YouTube, if you're listening in the browser, a great way to get the new episodes to your device every single other week when they come out. Every other week when they come out now. It's not every single week. Uh, Subscribe. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, all the places that you would probably expect. Uh, Otherwise... You can go over to collegeinfogeek.com to find plenty of other articles, resource pages, our college packing guide, because back to school is right around the corner, all kinds of cool stuff. So check that out. And uh, as always, thanks for hanging out with us, and we'll see you in the next episode. Stay cute.